Isaiah chapter 11 is a text we're going to be looking at, uh, and it's a great joy and privilege to be able to look at some of these Old Testament texts. We'll be looking at several Advent texts, several texts in the Old Testament that would point us forward, that would remind us uh, of the fact not only that Israel and Judah should hope in the coming of the Lord, we too should hope uh, in his coming. A few weeks ago, I spoke from Psalm 146, and uh, according to that psalm, uh, the children of Israel were not to trust in princes in whom there is no salvation, but in the God of Jacob, who made the heavens and the earth. They were experiencing great affliction, and so their hope must be on the God of Jacob who would deliver them. Then we started into Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, last Sunday morning. And in Isaiah chapter 7, we came to a little bit different period in the history of Israel, but again, they're in trouble And we learned that their hope was not to be in King Ahaz or an alliance with Syria and northern Israel or even uh, that uh, Assyria would come and deliver them. Instead, the text says, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so it's in this son that God will be with Judah and Israel and will help them. So then last Sunday night we looked at Isaiah chapter 9. It's two chapters later. And although the people were walking in deep darkness, the text says a light will shine upon them. A child will be born. A son will be given. And the entire government will rest upon his shoulders. His kingdom will bring lasting peace, true justice, and righteousness. See that in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9. This morning, we continue our study in Old Testament texts that call for God's people to find hope in God in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. So we come to this text, we uh, are 700 years before Christ. These people are still facing the mighty nation of Assyria with its powerful ruler, Sennacherib. Judah and Israel are going to be brutalized by him. But then, God will return the favor. That's what chapter 10 is about. He will return the favor and he will utterly defeat Assyria. As a matter of fact, look how bad it will be for them. Look at the last two verses of chapter 10. Verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height, Sennacherib, Assyria, will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This gives a picture of a forest that's been completely hewn down. No trees remaining, only stumps. Assyria will be wiped out when God chooses to act. But then we come to Isaiah chapter 11. Now for a moment, I'd ask you to do one thing for me, to read these two chapters without the chapter division, read these two sections without the chapter division in your mind. So I wanna read chapter 10, verse 34 again, And then I want to read chapter 11, verse 1. 
He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What we don't realize is that in between these two verses, there are approximately 700 years as Isaiah is describing these things. And in some cases, over 2,700 years. So for what we're going to read today, we will see things that describe the coming of a future king and his kingdom. And we're going to see that these things are fulfilled, some of them, in the first coming of Jesus, his incarnation, and others at the second coming when he comes back to deliver Israel and Judah. So as we go through this text, we're going to see kind of woven together in a beautiful tapestry prophecies from Isaiah in the form of a poem, a poem describing God and the the two comings of Jesus Christ. So as we look at this, my outline is very simple this morning. I'm into simple outlines at this time of the year. Uh, Just two uh, simple points. Uh, first, we, we will talk about, we have a description of a future king in verses uh, 1 through 5, and then a future kingdom in verses 6 through 9. And so I want you to look with me at verse 1. I'm going to read through the whole text, and then we'll break it into those two points. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and a weaned child shall put his hand on or in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. This morning I want to look at this one poem from Isaiah that captures a portrait of a coming king and his kingdom. So first we look at a description of a future king, verses 1 through 5. And the way I would summarize these things, I think Isaiah describes his his future coming king in five ways. 
Okay, so you just go through these very quickly. First, in verse 1, we see his heritage. His heritage, his roots. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Here Isaiah uses the imagery of a shoot or a young twig that will come to life out of a stump. The detached base, I know we know what a stump is, but the detached base of a dead, rotten, felled tree. A small sapling will come up from the stump of Jesse. But who's Jesse, right? Do we know enough of the Old Testament to know who Jesse is? Jesse is the father of David. So in this text, Isaiah is describing a new ruler who will come from Jesse's Davidic line. Remember, Jesse, one of Jesse's sons is David. And so from Jesse's Davidic line will come a new ruler. It's interesting to me how he's described here as the son of Jesse. David's father, and not even from David himself. Now, in other texts, there are plenty of other texts that says he comes from the seed and line of David. While there might be many possible ways to describe what he would say from the son at the son of Jesse, I think it's best to me to see that Isaiah sees this king not only as coming from the same line of King David, but as a better David. A more glorious more significant king than David? It's like, wow, okay, this, this is going to be something. I mean, if, if you're talking to Judah and Israel at this time, and you say, there's going to be a better king than David that comes from Jesse, I think it's, it's going to give them goosebumps. We go through this text, you see then uh, his heritage this is his, the roots. Next, uh, the way he's described is verse 2. I see his enablement, his enablement. This future king will come and he'll be enabled. Look at verse 2. It says, And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The enablement of this future king will come from the spirit of God. We find out in this text that the Holy Spirit will rest upon him. One of the interesting things I found this week as I was studying this text is in the New Testament what Jesus says about this text. Okay, there's a passage in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where, where Jesus is commenting about this text. He says, he says, I am here, and the Spirit of the Lord rests upon me. So for Jesus in the New, New, New Testament, this verse is fulfilled in his incarnation and ministry. And so the Spirit of God will rest upon Jesus 700 years in the future for these people, this ruler. And the Spirit of God, the text says, will give him wisdom and understanding and counsel. You see that in the text? Does that sound familiar, by the way? Counsel? Chapter 7, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. The Spirit will give him counsel and might. I'm just reading through verse 2 in your Bible. Will give him might, the Spirit of might. Does that sound familiar? He will be called mighty God. Same root, same word. 
The Spirit will rest upon this future ruler, and he will have the spirit of knowledge and of the fear or the awesome respect of God. Think Isaiah is predicting a different kind of king than King Ahaz, who will come in the future. One who has the abiding presence and enablement of the Holy Spirit upon him. Okay, so you got it so far. You got the heritage of this king. He will come from the root of Jesse, and you have the enablement of him. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. But then we see in verses three, in the first part of verse four, another description of him his judgment. His judgment. So look at verse three in the first part of verse four. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. We learn first in verse 3 that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This means this future ruler who comes to deliver Judah and Israel will be supremely concerned to please God. So just imagine this description of, of this future ruler. He'll be enabled by God. The Spirit of God will rest upon him and give him wisdom and counsel and all of these things, and he will take delight in nothing more than the fear of God. If you think about this, you're just thinking, man, this is going to be an awesome king. And this will enable him to be the kind of ruler who judges well. Not just judges well, that's understated. Judges perfectly. For the text says here, he will not only judge by what he sees and hears, what his eyes see, his ears hear. Know this future king, he will be able to distinguish far deeper than that. He will not base his judgment on appearances like every human ruler has ever done throughout the history of time. We cannot fault them, right? That's just what they saw. Just what they hear with their senses. But he will judge with, the text says, righteousness. But with righteousness. I think righteousness will be the fundamental rule of his kingdom. Where righteousness could be translated uprightness, straightness, or fairness. So this type of true, straight judgment, the text says, will be available to every person, especially the poor and the needy, because throughout the history of this world, they are often the ones who are abused in judgment by the rich. But not with this king, get it? Not with this king. So you see his judgments. This king will come from the stump of Jesse, be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and rule perfectly in uprightness. But then we see a fourth description of him at the end of verse 4. That's how I take the end of verse 4. His authority. This, this is just like awesome stuff. You should just like not just like read this and like leave on effect. I mean, look at the authority of this future king, okay? And he shall strike the earth. Okay, all right, how's he going to do this? With the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. This authoritative king will come with power that will not rest in weapons of war or military strength, 
But as one commentator this week described John Oswald, he said, the king, capital K, the king will need no other display of power than his bare word. He speaks or even breathes and the wicked are gone. Men and women, we live in a day of bombastic rulers who attempt to threaten and intimidate with their words. But our world today doesn't know anything like this sort of power, this sort of authority. He speaks and poof, the wicked are gone. It's interesting to me that Paul quotes this verse, verse 4, the end of this verse, in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, we won't take the time to turn there, but Paul uses this verse to point still forward to the second coming of Jesus. I want you to look at the end of verse 4, the verse I just read. There where it says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. I want you to look at that verse while I read to you 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Okay, so you're looking. I'm reading a different verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus, you still looking? Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this future king will be so powerful that he will wipe out the lawless one, the satanic son of destruction, with his breath. Men and women, it's like, wow. This is amazing. Isn't it so good to be on his side? It's like, man, I'm so glad I'm not on the other side. Because he just like opens his mouth. He says stuff. Or in some cases, he doesn't even say anything. He just breathes. And the lawless one will be destroyed. And finally, we see his character in verse 5. Stay in, stay in this text. His character, verse 5, read it. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He will wear his clothing, or for his clothing, righteousness, uprightness, like we described about, and faithfulness, which means, if we translate dependability or truthfulness, That is, this king will be completely upright and dependable. This is the future king of Judah and Israel, and men and women, he is our future king as well. I mean, who couldn't find hope in a king like this? His heritage, his enablement, his judgment, his authority, his character, I think they make him far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And so we say to this, come, Lord Jesus, come. But the poem's not finished, and we need need to look a little bit more. In verses 6 through 9, we see a description of the future kingdom that this king will rule over. So I want to read verses 6 through 9 with you and just make comment on those. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child 
shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think when we get to this point in the text, just in full transparency, as I look at this point in the text, I think this part of the text is looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ when he sets up a millennial kingdom for Israel. The future reign that Christ sets up at that time will bring amazing results. Okay, and I just want to, I've summarized them, and so we can go through these quickly. I have at least three amazing results in this poem. First, his reign will bring universal peace. This is the word shalom that we've seen before. It means complete wholeness. He's going to restore. He's going to make it like it was before. Everything that was meant to be complete holiness to creation. Text describes this in very vivid ways. Wolves and lambs together, leopards and young goats, lions and fatted calves will live in complete harmony with each other. Then did you pick up in the text, and the most vulnerable of God's crowning creation, humanity, the most vulnerable of humanity, a young child will lead these beasts and these animals. So it will bring universal peace. It will bring a reversal of the original curse in the garden. That original curse, the nature of all animals were changed. The nature of all creation was changed. And so animals who survive through violence, formal word would be carnivore, uh, carnivores, right, carnivores. They will become herbivores. Lions, the text says, somehow will live off of a diet of straw. So it'll be a reversal of the original curse. And then his reign will bring security. Small children will be able to play over the holes of poisonous snakes, cobras, and put their hand down into the den of adders. These are like shocking images, aren't they? Like, so any parent who reads this text, am I just like the only parent who reads this text and be like, Okay, I like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> I'm going to keep my kid over here for just a little while. We'll let your kid try it for a little bit. Because that's just like not what I know to be normal whatsoever. Completely different. Security. Children who sometimes wander into extremely dangerous situations in their naivety will have no reason to fear For this king will bring amazing peace and security. If we had more time, I would look at the rest of chapter 11. There's another poem, but honestly, it would take me a long time to go down through that second poem. Second half, you could read that more this week, but I'll just point out a few things to you there. I think there's some more results of of the nature of the kingdom that this man, this God-man will bring. Um, There, for instance, in verse 11... Well, verse 10, says there's a root of Jesse that's going to appear. It'll be a signal for the peoples. But look at verse 11. He will recover the remnant of Israel and Judah. 
and he's going to get them from places like Assyria and Egypt and Pathos, Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and all the coastlands. Verse 12 makes this like even easier for us to understand. He's going to, he's going to get the descendants of Israel and Judah from the four corners of the earth, east, west, north, south. He's going to retrieve the entire remnant. And he will utterly destroy the enemies of Israel and Judah. Verse 14, that's where I see that. The Philistines, the people of the east, the people of Edom and Moab, he's going to utterly destroy the enemies of Israel and Judah. And once Israel and Judah are brought back with him in Israel, the text says he will set up a banner or a signal that welcomes all people. Verse 10. All the nations will seek him and will find his resting place. I take that as his personal dwelling. Verse 10, they will find his personal dwelling. The text says in ESV, says they will find it to be glorious. Comes from the word kavod, which I would prefer to translate glory. So the people of this future kingdom will come from all over the world. They'll be invited to come in and to seek refuge in this king. They will find his dwelling place to be glory. It's going to be glory. So this is a time of universal peace, the reversal of the original curse of the world, a time of security and glory for all the nations. So how do we respond to this? We say, wow, right? I mean, come, Lord Jesus, come. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Sometimes we say things like, uh, I want Jesus to come back. I just hope he waits for a little while. Ever heard that before? Ever thought that before? I think sometimes it's applied to marriage. You know, someone's anticipating getting married. Okay, now I get it, okay? I'm not a heartless opponent of romance. I remember what that feeling was like, anticipating marriage. But the longer I go in life, I say, come. Come on. Come. Lord Jesus, come. Men and women, nothing will be greater than living with this king. I don't know how anyone could read the the words of this holy text of Scripture and not think that being with this king would be far better than anything we've ever experienced. So we've made it through the poem. There is one little part left at the end of verse 9. All that's left in this poem, this first poem, is the reason why it will be this way, the reason why the kingdom will be so amazing. I just described it. Why will his kingdom bring these amazing results? And I'm, I'm so glad the text answers this for us. Look with me at verse 9. It says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For, here's the reason why it's going to be this way. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I read that text, I say, that's nothing I've ever experienced before. It's something that's future. The key to this transformed creation and shalom 
well-being and harmony as God originally intended life is that our entire planet will know the Lord and his judgment. As we close, I ask you this morning, is is it the cry of your heart to say, come, Lord Jesus, come? It struck me as I read through this text and studied it this week that this was originally a poem from Isaiah about his king. Poems are often very personal and intimate creations that come from our hearts. Matter of fact, anytime anyone ever asks me to read a poem that they've written, I treat it as a very special thing. I think reading that poem often will give you a little window into their soul and their values. If we saw your heart today, would we see these words inscribed upon your heart? Come, my Lord Jesus, come. And may God give you the grace, every one of you, may he give you and I the grace to prefer the arrival of this king more than any person, more than any object, more than any event or pleasure in this world. Let's pray together. Before I close this in prayer, I want to give you an an opportunity to examine what is inscribed on your heart. Is there a value? Is there a person? Is there a relationship? Is there an object or a dream that you value more than the arrival of the king? Would you examine your heart? Would you confess any idol that means more than Jesus soon coming? Perhaps there's some here today who are so burdened by a relationship, a loved one, so burdened down that in fear we just say, Lord, if you tarry, it'll be okay. Would you just give that relationship to God at this point and say, Lord, I trust you with this relationship, with my child, with my grandchild, with my friend. I trust you to work in your heart. And Lord, help me to love nothing more than the thought that you could return. For us, the church, to rapture us, to take us to heaven, to be with Jesus forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this text of Scripture. Lord, I thank you for what I know about it. It's a poem. It's complex. It talks about Jesus' coming in the incarnation. It talks about his return later. But Lord, what I, what I see about this king, what I read in the holy text of Scripture, 
causes my heart to sing. Lord, I pray that this week I would desire nothing more than the arrival of the King. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.